0: you're listening to the broadway podcast network i wanna be a
1: producer
0: with a hit show on broadway i wanna be a producer
1: hey everybody it's ken listen has this ever happened to you someone comes up to you the morning after a big opening and says did you read the times review and you didn't little awkward, right? You want to feel in the know? Well, that's why I started the website DidHeLikeIt.com. DidHeLikeIt.com will tell you in a snapshot whether Ben Brantley or Charles Isherwood or whoever reviewed the latest show, liked the show, hated the show, or just thought it was so-so. So So check out DidHeLikeIt.com. Subscribe. You'll be the first one to know whether he liked it or not. And it's a brand new app in the iTunes store. So download it today. Okay, now on with the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective podcast. A few weeks ago, the annual Spring Road Conference was held here in the city. And if you don't know what the Road Conference is, it's when the presenters and staffs of all the theaters around the country that present touring Broadway productions descend upon New York City to address issues facing the road, take in all the new musicals on Broadway, and go to a lot of cocktail parties, like a lot of them. And every year at the conference, I'm reminded of how much our business depends on, quote, the road, end quote, and touring. As a New York producer, it's easy for me to get lost in only thinking about the 10 block radius I live and work in. But the fact is, Broadway is a huge street that stretches across the country. You'd think I'd remember that since my first taste of Broadway was a tour of Cats at the Colonial Theater in Boston. And that's why I brought in today's guest, who is an expert on the road. Today, we're talking to one of the premier booking agents in all of Broadway, Steve Schnepp, president of Broadway Booking Office, or as we call it, BBO. Welcome, Steve. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kevin. Pleasure to be in your pod. (laughs) Steve has been booking Broadway shows around the country since 1989. His current roster includes shows like Les Mis, Jersey Boys, Phantom, Beautiful, Matilda, Gentleman's Guide, and more. That's right. If you saw one of those shows in a theater near you, then Steve was the guy that helped make it happen. So, Steve, I think of booking agents as the wizard behind the curtain for touring shows. We don't hear a lot about you, but you really do make a lot of these tours happen. Tell me... In your words, what does a booking agent do? What's your job? <laughs>
0: well, we don't have little smart outfits, little wizard outfits, but um, just regular, regular business wear. Uh, and our job basically is to meet with producers such as yourself, uh, talk about the show, your show in New York, for example, how it's selling, uh, how the reviews are, uh, meet with you about uh, advisements about how we can put a tour together. And then we introduce that tour to presenters and theaters across the country and then our job is to try to put those cities in some sort of logical, geographical order so that you have a, a tour that can be as long as possible and to maximize your revenue.
1: And how did you get started in this business, very unique part of the industry? Yeah,
0: I, I, I guess you know I started really uh, collecting a lot of different experiences uh, in the theater. Uh, I was a journalism major in, uh, in Texas, and then uh, I worked in a theater, a roadhouse in, in Austin, Texas, uh, for five years doing operations. And then, so I built on that, and then I became a road manager for five and a half years, a company manager for five and a half years. And then in 1989, uh, they were looking for someone, Cameron McIntosh was looking for someone to uh, work with his booking agent that they had hired, Tom Mallow, and um, I was selected. So I started working on touring Les Miserables around North America. And um, Laps Dissolve worked for Cameron McIntosh for, solidly for, uh, as an employee for about 11 years and worked on tours for Les Miserables and Phantom of the Opera and Miss Saigon and Five Guys Named Mo. So just it was a, a gradual collection of experiences.
1: So Les Mis and Phantom and the, the Cameron shows actually of the late 80s, early 90s really redefined or defined a new era in touring, Right. What was it like putting Les Mis out on the road initially like that? Was there a huge appetite for it? Was it a challenging sell?
0: Um, there was a huge demand for it, a huge demand for Les Miserables. Uh After Cats had, had done a very good job, which you toured in, uh, or worked at the Colonial, I think you said. Um, that all, before that time period, touring throughout North America was a different landscape. That was producers securing venues around the country Usually in a high risk position, they were in a high risk position, and they would put uh, engagements, let's say in Philadelphia, on on sale, Uh, and then a few weeks later they put Boston on sale, and they'd play Philadelphia. And if it did great, they'd move to Boston and they'd spend money in advertising there. Then they'd move to the next market. If it didn't do well, then they would play a few markets. If they lost money here, lost money in the next one, they would close down. So in the mid '80s, the the Creation of the guarantee that the local presenter, the local theater operator, would pay the producer a guaranteed sum—that was really what changed um, the business and changed uh, how work is done. So, Les Misérables was one of the very, was the, sort of one of the shows that really kind
1: of uh, leapt out of the gate. See, I didn't even know that. So, the guarantee—for those of you who don't know what the guarantee is—again. That's literally a presenter saying, I'm going to guarantee you X amount of dollars, so they're guaranteed a show is going to come in the doors. And the mid-80s is when that started. But before that, these these shows could close after one or two presentations.
0: Yeah, I got a job as a company manager, leaving Austin, Texas, being a road manager, because the tour of Little Shop of Horrors played, I think, a consecutive series of engagements and lost money and lost money, and then they closed the tour. So... This replacement show. Austin was on the route for that, and it never made it to Austin. So we had a replacement show, and that show needed a company manager. And I said, okay.
1: <laughs> and producers were booking their own tours at this time, or was were booking agents really born out of this era? It,
0: really, in the early '80s and before that, it was really uh, producers would come to New York to one central. Uh, booking office called the IBO and that's when they would go with one fellow he had all the availabilities on one big spreadsheet big chart and you would sit down with your tour as a producer you'd sit down and say well, I want a tour so you'd sit down and he would give you which cities you would play at what time it was sort of doled out that way um, and then later on booking agents uh, that was all dissolved and then so then booking agencies
1: uh, were grown in the in, the, in the mid 80s hmm. So tell me, you talked a little bit about it, but let's say I've got a show. I've got a show, I want to tour it. It's running here in New York. I knock on your door and I say, Steve, I'm interested in touring this show. What are the first questions or the first things that you look at to decide whether or not it's viable?
0: Please come in, I would say, <laughs> if you knocked on the door. Offer um, me a nice frosty beverage, which <laughs> I have in front of me right now. Uh, we would talk about the show... Uh, of sort of the, the, first of all, the critical acclaim of the show. We would talk about the sales in New York, how how the audiences are reacting to the show, how your advance is building in, in New York. And then we would talk about on what way you might consider touring, whether you wanted to receive a guaranteed amount of money from presenters or whether you'd want to be in a risk position and play uh, you know multiple weeks in a, in a market that traditionally only plays one week. So we would sit with you and talk about all those all of those decisions and advise you, uh, and then we would, when you're comfortable, we would sort of then announce it to presenters that it's it's going to be touring.
1: Is there you talk about this looking at the sales figures for New York? Is there a formula for what works on the road based on what works in New York? Not
0: exactly, but but those are the indicators. That we have early on in a production, we we like you look at the all the data that's available uh, for the show in New York, and then try to make an, an advisement and a prediction. Of course, we talk to presenters day in day out, and you know get their response too to have a how is word of mouth? How have they heard about it? Because word of mouth obviously is our strongest seller to presenters as well as to ticket buyers.
1: Can a show work in New York and flop on the road, and can a, and vice versa? Does that
0: happen? I think you know. There's there was a and this was discussed at the league conference that you mentioned um, at your opening remarks. Uh, there was a sort of a myth or a theory that uh, you know. Wow, the show's not working in New York, but you know it's a great show for the road, and that it's a little that's a little hard because ultimately. Ooh, it's a, I know exactly who said that. <laughs> I I was there when they said that, and I wondered the same question: Will this work? You know, it's it's ultimately about the show and the audience. And so if the audiences are not having a great time in New York, audiences around the country might not have a great time. If they're having a fantastic time and on their feet and cheering, likely the people in Louisville or Cincinnati or Des Moines will have a, a similar reaction. Do we need
1: stars on the road today? Like, we, we, you know, New York seems to me anyway, especially when I'm looking for a theater these days, seems to be very star-dependent. Is the road audience desperate for stars as well? The presenters looking for them? I think that's a,
0: a hard question because who is, what, what is a star and what's the value basically of that star in a market? That's the real question. So in New York, you know, you have many star vehicles and they're generally limited uh, plays, right? They're plays for sort of close-ended uh, runs. So stars are not probably the first thing that you, you would want to put that. In the old years ago, yes, stars did tour, uh, and that was a, a norm. They would do the Broadway run, and then they would do a tour, that or two. That was really, Carol Channing did it for years.
1: But the simplest way to get a successful tour sold seems to be to have a successful run in New York. The more successful the run in New York, the easier it is for you to get presenters to buy. That's right. Plays on the road? Is there a, is there a place for plays? As I, I looked, I was reading out over your credits. I don't think I read any plays in there. Well, uh, you've done them before, though, right? And is there was an appetite for them? Is there now? How has that changed? Well, to to your other point of plays
0: in New York, they're they're often star vehicles, and those stars pretty much don't want to travel around the country and give up you know six to eight to a year eight months of of work. So we have to kind of take that off the table. There is room for the play still, very, very much room for a play. Uh, the last play we we worked on was War Horse, and we, we had about two and a half years of that. Uh, so that was a that was, but it was a very big event. It felt it felt sort of like a musical, you know, in that big way. Um, plays have have successfully toured for years, and I think they'll continue to, to to tour. It's usually the winner of the best play of the Tony Awards.
1: Yeah, it's funny you talk about Woolworths being a big production, almost like a musical. I feel that way about Curious Incident right now. Like, I'm predicting that that will tour. Regardless of what happens at the Tonys, I have a feeling that that show, which again feels so big, uh, that it will will get out there.
0: I hope you're right. I love that show. Yeah. Yeah. Is it yours? We're working on the press and marketing. Oh,
1: well, there you go. Uh, What are the challenges facing the road today that you, you obviously, I don't talk to presenters every day, even when I'm doing tours, and I think it should be done more often, frankly, what are you hearing from presenters are their biggest challenges? Biggest challenges.
0: Presenters really want quality productions. They want quality productions and their jobs are to put together a series of shows in a package that will attract subscribers to buy into that package. So, I think they're in the, the, the interesting position of programming shows that uh, and putting together an entire package that can be cost effective to their to their uh, subscribers. That's probably the biggest challenge. I think is is the balancing act that, that the presenters do, having agents like me calling them on the phone, introducing ideas to them, and there's other agents too that do the same work. So it's for them. It's trying to balance all of that. Um, all of those those concerns
1: but quality more than price and more than guarantee you think the first thing that they're interested in is making sure it's a top-notch show yes I do believe
0: that quality <laughs> equal to end price as well yeah. but that's
1: interestingly enough I, I asked that question again because that seems to me the same the same issues that our audience goes through even you know we talk about how expensive Broadway tickets are but the fact is, they want a great show, and when they, there's a great show, they'll pay $150, $200 for it. That's right. More, uh, that's more of a concern to them than price. So speaking of quality of production, here's the big controversial question. Here it is. You ready? Drum roll. Is there room on the road for non-union tours?
0: There's room on the road for non-union tours, I think, in a very a select way. Uh, most of the of – the, some markets will not program non-union shows. Some markets um, find a, a space for it uh, in, in some area of their programming. Uh, generally, the, the non union tours, as a generality, they're, they play mainly single nights. And so the production, after it's played for many, many, many uh, months in a, a union large format. So generally speaking, the non union tours are generally smaller uh, and can play shorter runs.
1: So there is a room, just the right venues and some some people can't afford big union tours, right? Many markets that uh, that program one night, they've been
0: programming one night for <laughs> since the eighties, <80s. laughs> and they the, the, what they can pay for that one night hasn't changed that dramatically over the years. You, maybe by a few
1: thousand dollars. So this is something that I've heard a lot, and that tour the guarantees. How well? Let me ask you a question, Les Mis. What was the guarantee of Les Mis when you were selling it in 1989, approximately? I think it was 275. 275 thousand dollars a week for Les Mis in 1989. You're booking Les Mis now. What's the approximate guarantee? Well, we're not
0: quite there. We did a very successful tour of Les Misérables, and it's now yeah. on on hiatus right now. Okay, but when it
1: was out, uh, 315. 315. So that. a difference of 30. 50, not even not fifty thousand dollars, somewhere around there, somewhere between twenty five and fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, in twenty five years, that's not a big increase in that guarantee. Why? You would think. Look, our ticket. What were our ticket prices on Broadway in that era? Fifty bucks. The top, brought- the top on the road
0: when his first toured, I think, was in probably in the. 50s, like 50-something. 50, 50 because I remember Phantom kind of helped break that that margin. into $60 in into some markets.
1: And top now on the road?
0: Um, it's high.
1: Over 100 In some markets based on, some on, markets. on dynamic pricing. So ticket pricing has gone up just like Broadway, but the guarantee has not. Eight years ago is really when dynamic
0: pricing really hit the road. That's really when... Theaters around the country, in big markets and medium-sized and small markets, all this all sort of embraced this changing the price point up and down to accommodate demand. It's a it's a huge thing now.
1: Yeah. So this is a I've heard this at many many road conference from many many a producer and a general manager screaming about how the guarantees have not increased at this at the appropriate level uh, percentage since the beginning. And of course, presenters, uh, in their defense, have been jumping up and down, saying, "You want to try to keep a subscription model together in 2015." And I promise all of you right now, we're going to have a presenter on this podcast coming up because I want to hear their side of the story, which I think is a very good one. It's an excellent. Yeah. They do a lot of work. Um, so, but it is fascinating how the business—that's how much it's changed—is that the model, the financial model, is so different now. Uh, what are the other big changes you've seen in the past? 25 years on the road that are affecting the way tours are booked or sold?
0: Well, as I mentioned before, the birth of the guarantee was a change in the road. The other big, big change has been the generally the increase in subscription sales um, in, in all of the markets. Uh, Cleveland now has a, a two-week subscription footprint and they have 32,000 subscribers. That's a lot. It's really good. So the subscriptions have grown, uh, more people, and that's that's Primarily because, I think, more people that, have, that are not used to coming to the theater come to the theater, have a good time, and decide to subscribe. What's also changed in the last 25 years, I guess, is the, the mega-musical, has there's more of them. Uh, in the 90s, Les Miserables was out. Then Family Opera came out. Then uh, Miss Saigon came out. And, and those all had their courses and so forth, and they would return to markets, which would invite single-ticket buyers into those markets um, and get them to sign up for subscriptions. Now, it's not just one or two mega-musicals touring around. It's Lion King, it's Wicked, Book of Mormon, Jersey Boys. Those are all out there as well. So that has helped the road a lot, in addition to having fresh group of shows every season coming on subscription sales.
1: Is there, in the era of these mega-musicals, is there room for something small that no one's ever heard of, maybe that doesn't win an award that's totally original? How does that, how does that sneak into these seasons?
0: Pretty much the job that we have as, as booking agents for touring Broadway is the show has to be either a success in London or a success in New York or have Hugh Jackman in it? <laughs> a, a major, major star. So those are really, that's really what they're looking for. Yes, there's room. Some presenters do mix and match some things that are smaller um, to, on their seasons, but that's pretty much the rare case. Do
1: you have a, let's go into the the, the closet and find some some dirty road story if you will what's the worst road story you could think of Uh, trucks collapsing on the highway any crisis any fun stuff that you can remember well as a road manager
0: I do remember having uh, the Radio City Rockettes on a tour we broke down in Iowa I remember being on the bus watching outside the window and seeing this wheel roll past us it was our wheel for the bus rolling past us (laughs) so the job was to try to flagged down some police, which we did, and uh, they brought a big old trailer and put us all in there and took us to, to the best little motel that, that was close by. Did you make it to the show on time? Uh, it was a day off, so we, we, did, we did that, so that was good, and so we did make it to the show the next day. Thank
1: goodness. Uh, you've worked with a lot of producers, obviously. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between being a Broadway producer and being a road producer producing for the road versus producing in New York? I think
0: you know. I love all the producers we work with. Uh, they're really—they each have their own personalities, their own set of experiences, their own uh, interests, and in what they how much detail they want to know how, about touring, about the the routes and so forth. So it's a—it's we try we try to fit each producer, give them the information that they want.
1: And what if you could design your your version of the perfect? producer for the road, what are the characteristics that that person would have?
0: Well, it's pretty much soup to nuts. It's it's uh, a grasp with the artistic, a grasp with what's happening on stage, uh, command of all the designers and, and directors uh, committed to keeping the show always looking fantastic, uh, understanding about uh, routing and booking deals and marketing plans and ad looks and press stories and raising ticket prices and lowering prices, how raps come in to, to play with all of this, how the weekly sales come in. So that's basically a producer that, that knows about the sort of the, the whole gamut.
1: Now, one of the things that I often forget about our country, actually, is that we're very different. Travel outside of New York City, and it's a whole different world out there. Sometimes it's amazing that it's even the same country, Yet these shows that are born in New York City and play to a very specific audience here then travel all over the country mm-hmm. to places like Harlingen, Texas, <laughs> where I played when I was a company manager of a non-union tour there. Have you, now they have different tastes, different cultures, different upbringings, have you ever dealt with a situation where people have said, you know what, we want this show, but you've got to change X, Y, and Z about it? You have to cut this song or remove this profanity or this is too sexual or this is that. Have you ever dealt with a situation where people are asking for things to be adjusted?
0: In rare cases, people have asked for perhaps some, some language to be removed a little bit. It's, it's pretty much rare. It, we, I, don't, I think for the most part, producers don't want to, to, to change the production or sanitize it uh, for what they think the public's going to want. The, pretty much they present the show as it is,
1: and I think audiences appreciate that. Have you ever had to sell someone on a show that was like, I don't think this is for our audience, whether it was Rent in 1998, right, you know, something like that, or a quote unquote controversial show that you had to be like, no, 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 trust us, trust us, your market is ready for it? I think.
0: So Light in the Piazza was up at Lincoln Center. And um, we were going up and my husband said, we're going to go see this production. It's written by, you know, a relative of Richard Rodgers. It's going to be, it's supposed to be wonderful. So I went to see it and I was, fell in love with it. I was blown away by the story, by the music, all of it. Uh, I had never worked with uh, Lincoln Center or Bernie Gersten, so I called him up the next morning and said, may I come meet with you? He said, yes, we met. I said, I think there's really a tour here. And He said, are you sure? you think it can really be a tour? I said, I do, I do. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful story, and it will be a very touching story, and people will embrace it. He introduced the idea to presenters, and a few of them said, well, there's some Italian in it. I said, well, (laughs) it's one song that's sung in Italian, but so audiences can understand that. They can understand what's happening on stage. So we got past that, and basically, the audiences, we ended up getting a 45-week tour of that, and presenters embraced it. They got every notice on the newspapers and online were all raves. One of the things I I mentioned to presenters to try to get them on board for this controversial material, if you will, because it had some Italian in it, is I said, you saw the show, right? In New York They said, yes. Who did you see it with? They said, well, our director of development. I said, well, that's great. But Lincoln Center has now offered to buy another pair of tickets for you. Come back with someone you love deeply in your life. And that will, be, I want you to experience the show in that way. Because most likely your audiences are going to experience the show with someone that they love, someone that, that's close to them. So that was one way to get the presenters on board.
1: And it worked. It <laughs> worked. Let's talk about the road in general a bit. If the road was a patient at a hospital, how would you describe its health? Would it be. Just fine, no problem. Would it be sick, dying, needs intensive care? How do you rate The Road these days in terms of its health? Very, very healthy.
0: Vibrant. Hearty.
1: And where do you think it'll go in the next 10 years, 20 years? We've seen when The Road began, let's say, was reborn in the 80s with Les Mis uh, and, and all those mega musicals, we saw the guarantee. What's the next thing? Is there a next thing that's gonna happen in the next 10, 20 years from now? Ooh,
0: I hope that we have more and more people coming into the theater that, that have not been to that theater in, the, in their market. This is, what is this? What, I, I heard about this um, online or I heard about this or I had got an email about this and because I bought a concert ticket. And then they'll come into the theater and then they'll be uh, have a great time and enjoy themselves.
1: Are there some producers out there that are pushing new uh, financial models? Are there people suggesting, you know what, this guarantee thing isn't, isn't working like it used to work. Our guarantees haven't gone up since 1990. What about trying something new?
0: Well, every show has its own sort of financial model. Um, the guarantee is one way of doing it. The other way is sort of a sharing terms arrangement where something comes off the top. Maybe it's advertising comes off the top, and then there's a split of proceeds. So uh, and, and that exists today. So there's there's quite a few models. You could also there's also models where you the producer rents the theater, like in the very old-fashioned days. So there's there's several models that that exist, and uh, it's 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 really market-driven.
1: Okay, last question. I call it my genie question. <laughs> okay. Which is, I want you to imagine that the genie knocks on your very nicely decorated office, by the way, uh, on the door here and says, Steve, you've done a fantastic job of booking shows all over the country and really helping to stretch Broadway from New York to all these small towns like Harlingen, Texas. I'm going to grant you one wish. If you could change one thing about Broadway, the road, our industry... What would it be? What is the one thing that drives you crazy? You're like one of the nicest guys I know, which is why I wanted to do this podcast. What gets you so mad, so angry, that you'd ask this genie with the snap of a finger that you would change? I would like,
0: genie, for in every market around the country, I'd like for you to produce at the front of the theater 5,000 people who've never been through that door to come through the door and be in that theater a year and that those people would would then be hooked on touring broadway and would want to come back and would tell their friends
1: okay so i'm going to ask you another question based on that cuz i of course this is something that keeps me up at night constantly is how we get new people to the theater do you think what do you think forget about Broadway. We need to do a lot more, obviously, and we're, you know, we just busted an attendance record, so we're doing some really good things, and we're keeping at it, which is great. And I think the road is doing good stuff, but what's an idea or what's something that they can do out there or even people listening to try to get new people to the theater in these local markets that can't see Broadway every day? Well, I think many people are doing that right now. They're trying
0: to, uh, to bring audiences in there When they have, uh, basically, one way is adjusting price points. Giving a variety of price points so that people don't, you know, choke over the price point. They can sit somewhere in the theater at at, at some price point. Uh, The goal, you know, to to sell sort of the upstairs seats. And, you know, the orchestra's already sold down there. So you're putting pressure then on the middle seats to be sold. So if you can move those those, uh, balcony seats first as well as the orchestra, which goes always first, then then you're really you're, you're giving more opportunity for more people to come into the theater. You know, we all pay our bills downstairs in the orchestra and in the mezzanine, and we make our profit in the rear orchestra and in the balcony. So,
1: Great answer. Steve, thank you so much for doing this today. All of you out there, remember Broadway is not just this 10-block radius here in Times Square. It is all over the country. Go see a show at your local market today. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Don't forget to check out DidHeLikeIt.com and subscribe so you can be the first to know whether the New York Times liked the latest show or not. And it's an app in the iTunes store. Download it today. That's DidHeLikeIt.com.